BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hey, y'all, and welcome to In Kaling Color. I'm your host, Kendra, and I'm here to tell you all about true black crime. I want to bring the light, the unheard, and push down stories of black serial killers, lesser-known murderers, and true tales of crime scene cleanup. The danger in ignoring black victims and perpetrators is not only in the devaluation of black life, but also in ignoring systematic oppression that makes black people more vulnerable to violent crime and less likely to receive justice. I'm not saying let's celebrate black crime, but let's just bring some light to it and let the people know what's really happening. True crime is horrible. Luckily, I'm not. Here we go. These are their stories. with all these episodes and today's episode is going to be a little different. I'm not talking about murder kill today. I'm talking about cults. Yes, I'm talking about cults. Do you know cults? Do you know black cults? I bet you don't. But after I finish today and a couple other ones, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Let's get to it. start this off with a direct quote from the person that I'm going to be talking about today. If you are uh, easily triggered by me saying certain things in regards to race and things like that, today may not be the episode for you because that's what we're talking about today. All right. So here's the quote. White people are the devil. They say the Nuwabians are not racist. That's some bullshit. I am. He might not be, but that's his prerogative. I for sure am. White people are devils, always have been, always will be. Okay. Um, that was literally like the first quote I found from this person. And I was like, you know what? Yeah. Let me get into him and see what he got going on. Cause uh, he might be spitting some facts. I don't know, but we're going to see. <laughs> so whether it's, um, you know, Jim Jones from Jonestown, the Manson family, or the Branch Davidians in Waco, um, cults have always been, you know, a really fascinating part of American history. But, of course, leave it up to America to basically shine the light there on the white cults and nowhere else. But, fun fact, hey, black people have cults too. 
black people are in cults as well. Black people are in white people cults. But there's also all black cults available. <gasps> Woo, you guys, we have cults too. This is crazy. So they may not be the same kind where you drink the Kool-Aid, you die, everybody dies. It may not be that type, but it may also be the type that's like, give me all your coins, may molest your kids. I don't know. We're going to scam the country. But hey, it's still a cult either way. Dwight York is a black supremacist cult leader who set up the Nuwabian Nation, which is currently classified, classified by the FBI as a hate group, of course. Um, although it does have, you know, roots in traditional um, Islam, it soon changed into a UFO mystery religion that claimed that the black race was superior to everybody and the whites were evil. They were genetically altered soldiers of ancient times that came to corrupt and ruin the world. And that as a result, all white people are literally monsters rather than people. By building this cult, um, they basically regarded him as God and he was able to create his own personal empire over which he pretty much created like and had total control over everyone. But before he was that quote God, he was a struggling ex-convict and then he was an R&B singer. If you have time, I posted a picture in my story and I asked, do you know who this is? It was a man in a white suit with a green bow tie, nice little press and curl, and he used to go by the name of Dr. York. He wrote songs with Gladys Knight, Stephanie Mills, lots of other people, and he had an album, quite a few singles that I'm sure you've heard of. You've heard of that song, You Are Everything? And he'd be like, today I saw somebody who looked just like you. He walked like you do. Anyway, that was his song before the Dells and everybody else got onto it. It was his. <laughs> Fun fact. Anyway, according to a birth certificate issued by the U.S., Dwight D. York was born in Boston, Massachusetts in 1945. Um, other sources say he was born in New Jersey, New York, Baltimore, or even in Ghana. He says he was raised in Massachusetts, but, you know, with these leaders, they kind of manipulate the people to think they're from where they're from wherever to feel you know special and important so at the age of seven he went to Aswan Egypt to learn about Islam he went to visit his granddad and I'm gonna try to say his granddad's name if I butcher it y'all please don't tear me up because it's a long name his name is As Saeed Abdur Rahman Al Mahdi and he was the imam of the Ansars in the Sudan up until 1959 he said that his grandfather looked at him and told him he would be the one to possess the light. So his grandpa is the one that started it. Sounds like that. So he returned back to the U.S. at the age of 12 and continued to study Islam from that point. As a child, they moved to, well, child, he was like a preteen, but him and his family moved to Teaneck, New Jersey. And then in 1964, at the age of 19, he received a sentence of probation for do, 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 sexually assaulting a 13-year-old female. He was arrested several months later on a different assault charge with weapons possession and resisting arrest and spent three years in prison. Upon his release in 1967, he became active in the Black Panther movement and then following the lead of some of the other group's figures, he did a pilgrimage to Africa to begin to fully, fully envelop himself in Islam. He ended up starting his own sect, and I'm going to say it again, sect, S-E-C-T, in New York in the 70s, 
where he preached a black supremacist ideology mixed with traditional Islamic doctrine. In 72, he moved his growing congregation into various apartments that he bought in the Bushwick section of Brooklyn and called his new commune the Ansaru Allah Community. At the headquarters, his followers strictly adhered to his teachings and beliefs. Children attended school, women were mandated to work in the office, and the male followers were tasked with recruiting new members. Kind of sounds like traditional Islam at this point. That's kids go to school, men recruit, ladies do the work. <clears throat> so former member and cult survivor Rudy Garnett said that when you were around him, you were mesmerized by him. He was so charismatic. It was just really amazing. I really thought that he was a messiah. York also was a staunch believer in polygamy, of course, and had sex with many of his female followers. A select group of his favorites became his wives. According to former follower Nikki Lopez, who later testified against him in court, the children were forced to live separately from their parents and were beaten with wire hangers and broomsticks and sometimes served, served and starved by York's concubines. So whoever his favorites were, they were doing the dirty work with the kids, of course. Over time, York needed more control over his cults by just doing more like fucked up shit. So they became like real sinister and sexually depraved and stuff like that. So according to law enforcement, they said that under New York's guidance, under New York, <laughs> under York's guidance, his concubines groomed the children to be his sex slaves. He would allow the children to watch cartoons and feed them ice cream. It was basically a complete grooming process with these kids and if you're into true crime and all that stuff you know exactly what the grooming process is they bring them up give them things do these things hey you can do this if you do this i'll give you this if you do this you know grooming them to do things whatever so through the 70s and 80s the aac expanded greatly um, he had about 500 people living in 20 apartment buildings that he owned in bushwick um, they operated bookstores gift shops a clothing store and even a grocery store there were several other chapters found in other cities and abroad in Trinidad, London, and Toronto. Of course, with any cult, everybody was asked to surrender all of their life's possessions. They were forced to live in his like barrack style apartments and basically work for free. They were given a daily quota of $25 to 100 that they had to reach by begging or selling literature. Those who did not meet those quotas were beaten and otherwise disciplined by his thugs. York controlled his followers' lives completely. He chose their spouses, mating them according to his whim. So he basically was like, I want you to marry them and y'all get together and have this baby because I picked y'all and this is what y'all get to do. The men and women lived in separate buildings and when they wanted to have sex, they were forced to ask permission to use a specific room. Sex with one spouse was a privilege granted only when one's duties had been performed satisfactorily. So if you made your $25, you can lay up with your husband. But if you didn't make your $25, you don't get to do anything. You just have to suffer until you make $25 selling literature on the street. Sounds amazing. Give up my whole life for that, right? Meanwhile... York also used this as his personal harem. He was effectively able to have sex with any woman he wanted to whenever he wanted to in the cult. He allegedly, allegedly impregnated most of these women and it wasn't long before he started to go after the young girls. He purchased an 80 acre property in the Catskill Mountains in 83 and used it as a retreat home that he called Camp Jazeer. 
According to one of York's sons, he spent about $5 million to build that mansion on that land. <sighs> okay, $5 million to build this. Them people was getting to the money out on those streets. If he had $5 million and he don't have no job, I know it wasn't leftover royalties from them songs because the songs wasn't really hitting like that. But $5 million, he bought the land and built a mansion on it. Um, the ladies and the girls were brought to the camp by Van and they lived in trailers attached to the house. And, you know, so like time passed and the law enforcement started to look into his possible involvement in like criminal activities um, to see if the bank was being funded by like bank robberies or counterfeit checks or anything like that. Basically trying to clock and see if he was out here scamming to get the money, which is possible. But he also had people feet to the pavement. So you never really know. So after, you know, the police was on his back for a while, he decided to take his followers and move to Eatonton, Georgia in 1993. It was there that the teachings took a bizarre and unpredictable turn. In 1993, he bought a 476 acre property in Putnam County, Georgia, and moved there with all the members from the Brooklyn chapter. So about this place, um, he built this like big, huge, big, huge, like Egyptian compound. It had like, like, you know how the, um, what is that? The Luxor hotel in Vegas where it's like the lion or it looks like a pyramid. He built pyramids on the land. He had big ass like sphinxes all over the place. Like it was wild. Like I'm going to post some pictures. It was actually really dope to see, like it looked pretty dope and he named it Tama Ray. T-A-M-A-R-E. The relative isolation of that land appealed to him, and the, that was the largest town in the region. It had about 6,000 people there. So they say he basically moved there because he wanted to kind of get out of the way of New York because the people were coming in on him about weapons, possessions, welfare fraud, all type of stuff. So he got up out of Dodge and moved to Georgia. So once he got to Georgia, he basically was like, fuck it, I'm not a Muslim anymore. They went through several names and changed identities for a while. For a while, he said he was named Chief Black Eagle of the Yamasee Native American Moors of the Creek Nation. And he also applied for a license to operate a casino because some places, if you have like Indian blood, you can get a, if it's land, you can get a license, whatever. He was trying to get some coin um, that failed. So then he changed his name to the United Nation of Nuwabian Moors using an Egyptian motive. He also started identifying himself as a God from outer space. So I was listening to another podcast the other day and they were saying like, so take for instance, the heaven's gate cult. They, the leaders of that said they were from space, but space to them was heaven. So it's like, they made it seem like if it was an alien, the alien was actually supposed to be angels. So they said that when you read the Bible, supposedly it's like when they say heaven is supposed to be outer space and the angels were actually aliens. I don't know, but that's what I read. It could be, you know, I love a good conspiracy theory. We're not going to know. Okay. We don't know. So after he had those guys build the pyramids and everything, um, most of the people on the property, they lived in trailers while he stayed in the big mansion on the property, of course. And about 400 people lived in that location and the surrounding area around there. 
That location became really profitable during a June 1998 Savior's Day celebration. He took in about $500,000. That's a lot, especially in 98. That's a lot now, but in 98, okay, that's a coin. He was charging everybody $25 a year for their Nuwabian passports, which basically allowed them to come on and off of the property whenever they wanted to. Otherwise, you had to pay to get on there. A network of chapters and bookstores called All Eyes on Egypt also brought in funds and members continued to raise money through their begging and some had jobs at this point when they were moved. Once the group's sources of revenue was a nightclub called Club Ramsey's. It was an illegally operated juke joint on the property in one of the pyramids. I saw a picture of that. It actually looked really dope, like a nightclub in a pyramid. I'd probably go to that too. And it was illegal, so you know there was pouring drinks heavy. You could do drugs in there. You could do whatever you want to because it's illegal anyway, so we might as well do whatever we want to do. It was illegally operated because the pyramid had only been zoned for use as a storage facility. So... After a while, in 1998, they shut down the club. So after that, then they went into this whole tirade about the police down there being racist because they didn't want them to have any money, do all this stuff. They caused, like, all type of problems downtown, doing, like, flyers, protests, all this stuff. Um, They were slashing the um, district attorney's tires. They were just doing a lot, like, throwing bricks through the windows, getting dogs attacked. They killed his dogs at the house. They did all type of stuff, um, death threats, everything, all because they shut down their little illegal club. Okay, so here was the interesting part of this story. So in the spring of 2000, Wesley Snipes comes down to Eatonton, Wesley Snipes, and wants to get a piece of land that is like literally basically next door to it because, you know, he's really into martial arts and stuff like that. So he was going to build a training facility for his, he was going to come up with like a personal security company and he was going to train them on the property. So he was trying to zone the property so he could house weapons and stuff like that. Um, and then once the government, I guess, found out that he was down there, they were like, oh, we can't have Wesley Snipes with all that right there. And then those Nawabians next door, that just sounds like a tragedy waiting to happen. Too many black people in one spot with money guess we can't do that can we anyway they did not let Wesley get that property he didn't get it he probably didn't need to get it It that's probably when he was about to start facing tax evasion and his ass dude it off but you know we're gonna leave Wesley alone because I do love me some Wesley Snipes anyway after all that they were still going on about the racist stuff in the town so they got Al Sharpton to come down there Jesse Jackson, quite a few people came down in 2000, 2001 to speak on the, quote, racism that they were receiving while they were down there. So after the whole Wesley Snipes thing, the child molestation cases started to come about. They started getting anonymous letters, things like that. But it took like two years before a victim was willing to actually come forward. So in spring of 2002, um, the New York New York police and the Georgia police started basically putting together a whole case against him. They were planning on arresting him at his compound, but they wanted to avoid anything that happened kind of like Waco. So they kind of 
handled it a little bit differently instead of just going in there like because they didn't know what they had on that land because you know he was into the illegal so we don't know what he had on that property so on may 8th of 2002 york and his most trusted wife kathy johnson was arrested later that day after leaving tom array and then later that day 300 law enforcement officers included the fbi Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, some sheriffs, and everybody basically stormed the compound. They only found about 30 stockpiled guns. I mean, that is a lot, but in the grand scheme of it all, that's not a lot based on what they were trying to find. So on May the 16th, York was indicted by a grand jury on 120 counts, including 74 counts of child molestation, 74 counts. Now, all that other stuff, that 74 counts was not anywhere in here. In any of that stuff I looked for, I didn't see nothing about 74. So I don't know where 74 came from, but they're also anonymous. So who knows? 74 counts of child molestation, 29 counts of aggravated child molestation. I don't know what the difference is. Aggravated, not aggravated. We're going to figure that out. We're going to figure it out. And then one one solo count of rape. When more evidence came to light, the number of counts grew even higher than that. A separate federal level case charged York with racketeering and transporting children across state lines for the purpose of sexual intercourse. So basically all those kids that those people were having, the kids they had prior to, that's, that's what that sounds like. If you had like 500 members, most of them probably had kids. And then if he was getting with them, them kids had kids. And it just sounds like, sounds like pretty awful shit coming from an R&B singer it's it's not giving what I thought it was gonna give I I don't really know what I expected when I started researching this but it probably wasn't 74 counts of child molestation and 29 counts of aggravated child molestation um, York then accepted a federal plea bargain in January 2003 after they promised him a 14-year sentence to be followed by probation. In that deal, he pleaded guilty to 77 state charges. And a day after pleading guilty to those charges, they actually went on and included 40 more counts of aggravated child molestation, 34 counts of child molestation, two counts of influencing witnesses, and one count of child exploitation. So this is a little bit different from what was before, but... They basically tacked on some more stuff at the end of the day. So in federal court, he pleaded guilty to one count of unlawful transport of minors for the purpose of engaging in sex acts and a count of attempting to evade financial reporting requirements. York will supposedly serve 15 years in federal prison if the court accepts his plea agreement. And they would run concurrently, basically. Basically, he just go from sentence to sentence. Either way, he's not getting out, but sentence to sentence, you know. Um, there was a judge, the U.S. District Court judge named uh, Hugh Lawson. He basically recused himself from the case due to the defense motion. And case, York's case ended up going to federal court in 2004. He was ultimately sentenced to 135 years in prison on state charges. He was convicted on four counts of racketeering and six child molestation related charges. Okay. It said six. What happened to the other 70, 80, 90, 105? Six? Only six. Okay. I don't know. 
I don't I don't know anything about that, but I don't know how you go from a hundred something to six. Doesn't make any sense to me. That doesn't sound cool at all. The racketeering charges enabled the government to evict the Nuwabians from Tamaray and confiscate all their property. So everybody else, get out. Don't even take your stuff. Just get out. Find you somewhere else to go. You can't stay here. Uh, York's main wife, Kathy, reportedly did agree to a plea deal, and she was sentenced to two years in prison. She had been accused of child molestation also, and then procuring sex for procuring children for sex with York. Kind of like that lady with the Jeffrey Epstein. Gislaine, Gislaine, I don't know how to say that, but she was doing what she was doing, basically. In 2004, she was sentenced to two years in prison, and then she had 18 years of probation. <laughs> 18 years of probation? Like, <laughs> y'all, she might well have stayed in jail. At 18 years. I, I meant to look up how old she was because if she did two years in jail and then you get out 18 years of probation, did she have an ankle bracelet for 18 years? Or one that's like, not like house arrest, but like, <laughs> I, what are you doing with 18 years of probation? Like for what? You just want me to check in with you every week for 18 years, dog? I can have a whole nother kid. And the kid go to college and I'm still on probation. I can't even go to graduation. Girl, I got a report to my office of the day. I ain't going to be able to make the probation. I ain't be able to make the graduation. <sighs> that don't make no damn sense. Just leave the bitch in jail. We can't be doing all that. That's just ridiculous. Okay, so in the end, um, when he ended up going to jail, it didn't, like, destroy the community. They have, like, lost a lot of members, but they're still active. Um, when the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals um, reconsidered York's case on the appeal in 2005, 200, over 200 Nawabian protesters came in Atlanta to show their support. In 2009, the Nawabians tried to get him out of jail by sending false documents to his maximum security prison. Some of the documents were stamped by notaries public, six of who lived in Athens, Georgia, and that's where some of the Nawabians ended up going. Howard Seals, the sheriff that was responsible for York's arrest, has also been harassed by the nation ever since then. They have sued him more than 12 times and once paced a f put a fake lien on his property. I always be wondering how people can just like get into paperwork and be like, I'm going to put a lien on his house. Like if you really want to get mad at somebody, craft up some papers and put a lien on their house. And you'd be like, yeah, you thought you was going to get away, bitch. I put a lien on your house. You can get out. But then it's fake, and then the whole time, whole time your girl sitting across the street like, <laughs> you thought, <laughs> I'm tripping. So on August the 26th in 2009, 300 people came to the federal courthouse in Macon, Georgia, to support another appeal to get York out of jail. So as of 2011, because this was a while ago, they haven't you know done a lot since then, but they're still posting on the websites, on the forums, you know, defending his actions, whatever he did. And they're basically saying that the government framed him, of course. We always go back to government framing, but we can't rule out government framing because the government frames and they do it a lot. And I'm sure a lot of people have never even really heard of the Nuwabian nation before. Because I never heard about it. And even when I Googled black cults, I saw that. And then I saw 
everybody else. Heaven's Gate, the Branch Davidians, everybody, 12, the 12 disciples, everybody. But we didn't see nothing about the Nuwabians. I found some more. I got another one coming up soon. House of Yahweh. You know who Yahweh Ben Yahweh is? Nope. The whole city of Miami knows who he is, though. We'll talk about that another time. You know what the house of prayer is? If you're from Charlotte, you do. If you're not, you will. Because guess what? It's a cult, too. (laughs) But I'm not going to get into that today because that's a whole other episode. And it's going to be a gag, especially for those who don't live around here and don't know. Because I told somebody earlier and he was like, oh, my God. So that is going to be a good one. So I'm going to wrap up this episode of Cults for the first time. I appreciate y'all for listening. Follow me on all social media at In Killing Color. Follow my producer at It's These Sweet Talkers. Theme song by Remix Maniacs. Research and writing, of course, done by me because I memorize it all and I kind of go off my head a little bit. But thank y'all for listening. See y'all next time. Bye. That's the like straight up and down, like there's literally like record of him. There's pictures, there's albums, there's a whole Wikipedia page about his career. That is wild to me. <laughs> How do you go from from that to, to this? I'm gonna lead a cult. I don't wanna sing R and B anymore. I don't wanna sing. I'm gonna tell people what to do and molest young girls. That's Sounds true. great. And he doesn't want that. But you want kids. He wants kids. Sounds groovy. Dwight. (laughs) And then he changes. I didn't even say this in the story because we can keep all this at the end. He, his name, he changed it to, so you would think it was Malachi. M-A-L-A-C-H-I. Oh, no, baby. It was Malachi. Malachi Z. York. Malachi. (laughs) Malachi. Malachi. <laughs> Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn five dollars into one hundred and fifty dollars instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.